This is Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. Uh, today, I have the great pleasure and honor um, to have the senior author, uh, Dr. Genevieve uh, Bouchard-Fortier uh, from Princess Margaret Cancer Center, University Health Network, Sinai Health System, University of Toronto Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. She, as I mentioned, is the senior author in our lead article titled Enhanced Recovery After Minimally Invasive Gynecologic Oncology Surgery to Improve Same-Day Discharge, a Quality Improvement Project. Um, Genevieve, thank you so much for participating in the podcast. Thank you for submitting this article. I think it's a great article. And we want to we wanna highlight and, and certainly discuss this, uh, this manuscript uh, with you. So welcome. Well, thank you, Pedro, for allowing us to present our work. It's certainly an honor to be here today. Great. So, um, Genevieve, I wanted to start um, by recognizing that, you know, certainly, although in, in many institutions, same-day discharge after minimally invasive surgery is standard, there, there's obviously a large number of centers, um, according to your data in the introduction, anywhere from 40 to 86 percent, where the patients are kept overnight. Um, and obviously, this is for numerous reasons that we could potentially discuss later in the podcast. But can you tell us a little bit from your perspective and in doing this work and investigating the background about this work, um, how big of an issue is this uh, in your country? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a great question. Um, we do have some retrospective uh, data from large tertiary Canadian uh, cancer center, and their reported rate of same-day discharge was anywhere from 50 to 60% for both laparoscopic simple and radical hysterectomy. Um, the, that center were pioneer in, in same-day discharge of uh, gynecology uh, patients in Canada. Uh, and I suspect the rate is much lower uh, across the country, um, but we do not have this data, unfortunately. What I can tell you is that at our center, which is considered the, the largest cancer center in, in Canada, uh, where we thought we were doing great, our same-day discharge rate, when we look back, was only 30%. Um, so that's where we, we realized that there was a, a problem, and if we were only at 30%, we can probably uh, assume that a similar story is, is going on across the country. Yeah, and I, and I think that, you know, you bring up a great point with regards to, you know, how we assume that our numbers are, are really high. And, and, you know, certainly when, when you ask around and you ask your colleagues, uh, yeah, everybody's patients go home the same day. But then when you look at the actual data, uh, that may be significantly different. So I wanted to ask you the next question is, what, what do you see as uh, potential common reasons for keeping a patient overnight after minimally invasive surgery, particularly when everything went great. Yes, yeah, so we perform a literature uh, review and also reviewed our own local data. For years leading up to this project, we were kind of tracking our same-day discharge rate and what were reasons for, for um, admission without really doing much with it except reporting those rates. Um, and, and really the, the main reason for unplanned uh, admission after a minimally invasive gynec uh, gynecologic oncology procedure were mostly modifiable um, uh, factors. So if we think post-operative nausea and vomiting is a huge one, uh, post-operative drowsiness, so patients are too sleepy to go home. And then that unit uh, where they were staying is closing for the night. They have to go somewhere. 
Um, urinary, urinary retention was another a big one that's been reported, um, as well as uh, uh, some pain. Um, and certainly uh, one that we really have to account for is patient and surgeon's expectation for overnight stay. So this misconception that staying overnight is going to solve the problem for any readmission or, or ER visit. But if we think about it, most of the issues occur after that that. 24-hour window, not uh, not in the honeymoon period, which is right after you discharge them at, at 10 a.m. the following day. They will have problem day three, four, five, six, seven, which you would not have had them in hospital at that point. Yeah, and and I think that uh, one one key word that you mentioned there is modifiable, because you know as you mentioned, a lot of times there's really not a, a really great reason for the patient staying. So I'm glad you you highlighted those. So then uh, looking specifically at this study, our lead article, um, what, what was the main objective of, of the study? So as I've told you, we knew the same day discharge after minimally invasive gynecologic oncology surgery was safe and feasible. There was enough data in the literature, but there was really limited data on how to improve the same day discharge rate at, at your institution. If you're not doing uh, a great with same-day discharge, then what do you do? Um, so this was really our question. We knew it was safe. We knew it was feasible, but we didn't know what to do to improve it. Um, so therefore, uh, our main objective was based on a quality improvement initiative, um, which was to design and implement a comprehensive perioperative care program that was based on early uh, recovery after surgery, so the ERAS principle, to improve the same discharge rate from a baseline of 30% to 75% after minimally invasive gynecologic oncology surgery over a 12-month period. Yeah, and, and I think that it, this really um, highlights it once again, the importance of incorporating an enhanced recovery program. Because, you know, many times, uh, one, of the, one of the points I have brought up about ERAS is, uh, well, it makes a great impact on open surgery, but does it really impact minimally invasive surgery? So I'm really glad that you integrated this in, in this project. So um, tell us a little bit about the methodology. You know, was it a single center versus multi-institutional? Um, how many patients? And, and, you know, also, did you have a control group? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and our methodology was a little bit outside the box of the typical prospective study. We really uh, use a quality improvement methodology with the model for improvement framework, uh, which includes rapid iterative cycles using PDSAs, which are plan, do, study, act cycle. Um, so what we first started was doing an audit of the 100 consecutive patients. Um, pre-intervention. So we wanted to get a sense of what were the baseline same-day discharge rate at our institution, what were the 30-day complication rates, and really try to understand the factors that were associated with unplanned admission so that we could tailor our interventions accordingly. Then we created a set of interventions that were based on the ERAS principle um, that included uh, pre-operative interventions, intraoperative intervention, and post-operative interventions to really address those modifiable uh, factors uh, that affect length of stay. Uh, and again, we were following those ERAS principle. So some of our PDSAs or so our intervention included a stakeholder engagement. So we first developed a team, a multidisciplinary team of, uh, of uh, uh, trainees, surgeons, anesthesia, uh, nurses that were from the pre-op, intra-op, and post-op period. 
so that we really had everyone's opinion and everyone on board and engaged in the project. Then there were tailored education that was provided to uh, uh, those team members, but as well as to patient, uh, we developed the educational material to really set the expectation that this is a day surgery, you're expected to go home. Um, so this change in the change the narrative that we'll see, you might go home same day, you might not go home. So it was pretty clear, this is a day operation, you're going home same day. Obviously, if there's major issues, you will be admitted, uh, but planned that way. Uh, so we launched our initiative in January 2020, uh, and we felt that if we could reach the same-day discharge rate of 75%, this would be a, a successful uh, project over a 12-month period. So January to December 2020, that's when we enrolled 102 patients through this comprehensive perioperative care program. Given that it was a quality improvement initiative, anyone that met kind of the criteria for same-day discharge went through the program. So we did not really select uh, um, uh, inclusion, like as long as you met the inclusion criteria, you were going through the motion of, of our uh, comprehensive perioperative care program. So we did not have a control group. And as well, um, um, we performed iterative cycles along the way uh, to make sure that uh, we were in line with our objectives and that we would reach our objective by the 12 month period. And we also included, which is a bit of a variance of quality improvement project, but a multivariate analysis to try to highlight which, which interventions had the, the most predictive same-day discharge impact. Great. And now that you mentioned the, the dates of conducting the, the study, and I, I had not uh, caught up to those, uh, you know, more credit to you really starting this just before the COVID pandemic. So really amazing. Well, you, you raise a good point. So in a way, the COVID pandemic helped us. So initially, when we started in January, slowly our rate went up on our run chart. We could see we were 40, 50, 60%. And then COVID hit, these ORs were closed. And then they were selecting only patients that could go through that could go home same day as the hospital were getting filled. So our initiative really came at the right time. And then we reached 100% same day discharge because we could not keep the patients. And we were like, you're getting your surgery if you can go home. So everyone was motivated, including uh, patients. They didn't want to stay in a hospital filled with COVID patients. Yes. Patients were scared, but they also wanted their, their cancer treatment treated. Fantastic. Yeah. So sort of like the COVID bias working in your favor. Uh, so... <laughs> Um, so you mentioned some of the um, criteria for um, entering the study. What, what were specifically some of the inclusion and exclusion criteria? Yeah, so interestingly, prior to our study, there were no predefined criteria for selecting patients for same-day discharge after minimally invasive surgery. Basically, we were consenting patients and everyone was assumed to be same-day discharge unless anesthesia or the surgical team felt, oh, you know what, this patient, I think we should admit overnight. Um, so that's why this led to significant admission uh, after surgery. So what we did is we developed inclusion and exclusion criteria based on, on some consensus uh, discussion uh, with the team. 
So we uh, kept this for uh, endometrial cancer, um, a suspicious pelvic mass than this less than 10 centimeter or microinvasive cervical cancer patients. So the LAC trial came around a little bit before, so we excluded any uh, radical hysterectomy for cervical cancer, and those are not done anymore at our center. Yeah. Um, so we then excluded patients that were uh, older than 80 years old. We felt that if you're um, older than 80, a bit more frail, a bit more at risk uh, of delirium postoperatively, so, so it's reasonable to, to at least offer an admission. If a patient is really motivated to go home, they could still go home. Uh, if you have no social support, as we needed someone to stay with the patients for 24 hours after the surgery. If you live more than two hours away, either uh, by uh, subway or, or transport, like car, then we felt like a three-hour you know, car ride after your surgery might not be appropriate. If your body mass index, but we did encourage patients, like some patients often uh, rent a whole, like go to the hotel uh, as well. So this happened a few times where they would stay with their family uh, uh, for 24 hours after in a hotel near Toronto. Um, but that was at their discretion, not something we enforce. Body mass index over 50 uh, kilogram per meter square due to the anesthetic risk. Uh, but we've had some patients over 50 that end up going uh, home as they were motivated. If they had dementia or two or more major medical issues, such as uncontrolled hypertension, atrial fibrillation, sleep apnea, renal failure, a previous stroke, or significant coronary artery disease, so two or more. That was based from discussing with anesthesia. Great. And, and you have mentioned some of the interventions, and I was wondering if you could focus particularly on the discharge criteria, because obviously I think that's a, a major determinant of whether you're going to be successful or not as to like, what's your checklist before they walk out the door? Yeah, for sure. So although the, the, the checklist to walk out the door is essential, it's all the pre-work that has also has a huge impact. And I encourage everyone to look back at the article to have a bit more detail on what were the pre-op intervention interrupt as well. But really setting the tone with the patient, having that discussion, developing good educational material preoperatively is essential, as well as um, avoiding uh, prolonged fasting, bowel preparation. Uh, we did use carbohydrate load. Those were all pre-op interventions. Intraoperatively, we worked with anesthesia to avoid uh, um, uh, overuse of, of narcotics, uh, optimize the antiemetics so patients are not uh, too sick after the operation. Um, and the Foley catheter was removed in the surgery uh, right at the end of the case, which was not our standard practice at our institution before. So postoperatively as well, again, reinforcing patients go home, but also reinforcing it to the nursing team that it's okay that they go home same day and they, they, the team was there to support them because that was essential. The nurse felt uncomfortable sending patients home same day. So, so we developed criteria such as pain and nausea had to be well controlled. So patients had to be able to tolerate a, a bit of fluid after the operation. Vital signs had to be within normal limits. Um, someone had to be with them. So we had to confirm someone was with them in the uh, first uh, 24 hours. And then we had a trial of void. Along this, we develop a, a trial of void uh, protocol. Um, if patients fail the trial of void, we felt it wasn't a good reason for them to stay overnight. They could just go home uh, with a Foley catheter with the plan for uh, um, the plan for a clinic visit to have it removed. It's still uh, uh, reasonable to do that uh, and spares everyone an, an, an admission. And we also had a, a 
uh, called 24 to 72 hours uh, by our clinical and their specialists to review how patients were doing at home. It's that extra support to say, we're here for you um, it, it, like, and address any concerns or questions. Yeah, that, that last point I'm sure was very, very helpful uh, to the patients as well. So uh, one, one last question before we get into the results. Um, over the course of, of the study, did you have any like periodic audits to see like how things were going or to make sure that you were able to modify certain things or certain approach? Of course, um, as a quality improvement initiative, so we did our, our, our two weeks audit uh, as soon as we start the, started the intervention to really examine our same day discharge rate. Uh, what were the reasons for unexpected admission and really mon monitor the adherence to each of the components of the perioperative program and plan adjustments as needed. Um, we then perform our monthly run charts uh, and we introduce uh, adjusted interventions to try to increase the compliance to the uh, uh, different aspect of the ARAS principle we were following. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, this quality improvement methodology is different than a prospective study. You don't set criteria and that's it for 12 months. You can adjust and do iterative cycles along the way uh, to really reach your objective, which was a, a same discharge rate of 75%. Great. So now let's get into the results. What, what did you find at the end? So at the end, well, we were able to increase our same-day discharge from a baseline of 29% to 75% over that 12-month period in the patient population that I previously defined. And um, no surprise, there is no difference in the 30-day perioperative complication, uh, readmission rate, reoperation rate, or emergency department visit or mortality. We also included a patient uh, satisfaction. So we wanted to, to evaluate patient experience um, and 89% of patients rated their experience as very good or excellent. And 87% uh, felt that the length of stay was adequate. So you can't please everybody, but we know that the vast <laughs> majority felt that it was uh, adequate. Great. Um, and now getting into a, a few questions about the, those results. Um, you know, there are many who would look and say, wow, you know, you, you went up to 75%. That's fantastic. Uh, but some might say, well, look, you, you put in all this effort, you had all these interventions, and there were still 25% of patients that stayed overnight. What were some of the more common reasons for that? Yeah, so that 75% was an average over the 12-month period. So when we look back, uh, the most common, initially, the most common reason was nausea and vomiting. Uh, at 16% and drowsiness. Um, so that led to further work to try to limit narcotic use and, and avoid non-sedative analgesia, as well as optimization of anti-emetic. We try to avoid using gravel and focus on odensitron, which is not as drowsy as well. So we made some adjustment and really optimized the Tylenol and the Astaminophen and the NSAID. Another reason was a few unexpected comorbidities. So three patients, which I'll address later, had some comorbidities that were maybe should have been admitted overnight and did not meet our, our exclusion criteria. Uh, but there were no real patterns to, to, to highlight there. So one of the fears, obviously, that many, not just surgeons, but patients have is that if you kind of rush me out of the hospital, then I'm going to be back here tomorrow or I'm going to perhaps need another operation. Um, what were the rates of readmissions and reoperations? Uh, because actually, I think that's always very important and many surgeons are hesitant because they'll say like, I don't want my patient back here in the ER tomorrow. 
So not surprisingly, readmission rates were the same at about 2% pre and post intervention. Uh, pre and intervention group. Uh, same for reoperation rate uh, at 3% and 1% related to uh, vaginal valve dehiscence or um, uh, port side hernia. We also had um, uh, ER visit, which was the same in both group at seven and 10%. So no change with our intervention. Great. So the next question, I see that you had uh, Dr. Greg Nelson as one of the authors in the study, one of the leaders, uh, if not the the, the, one of the most recognized figures in ERAS and gynecologic oncology worldwide. And he always talks about, you gotta be compliant, you gotta be compliant with enhanced recovery. Um, tell us a little bit about the importance of adherence to an ERAS protocol and its implications on these findings. Yeah, I mean, Dr. Nelson was an like a advocate of adherence. If you cannot look at what you're doing, you cannot, say you're doing ERAS, because how do you know if you're not monitoring compliance and adherence to the intervention, well, you might not be doing anything as far as you know. So you have to look. Um, so, so we did develop a REDCap database to track compliances to all our interventions. Um, as we know, ERAS guideline includes about 20 evidence-based intervention that occurs throughout the perioperative journey uh, to optimize the functional recovery, the reduced post-op complication, and also um, uh, um, involve cost saving. So tracking compliance is essential to the success of this project. And we knew that we would not be perfect right away. We knew that there would be some resistance uh, to some of the interventions. So constantly reviewing our adherence to the ERAS principle uh, uh, was really a priority. Uh, and we could prioritize our efforts based on where we were not doing so well with compliance. As an example, uh, uh, to uh, Dr. Nelson's uh, um, um, mentoring, we were still using bowel prep on all our patients with a minimally invasive <laughs> surgery and clear fluid diet prior. So initially, we kind of convinced everybody we could try on a certain group of the MIS patient, but there was still some resistance among the group uh, and some surgeons were still using bowel prep. So six months into the intervention, we look back and say, you know what, there's still half the group using bowel prep on some patients, why don't we try to stop? Uh, yeah. And see what happens because right now half the group doesn't do bowel prep and they're fine. There's no increased conversion rate uh, or time is the same. There's no other complications. So we've tried that. And now we finally have stopped using bowel prep after many days <laughs> of patients. So, uh, so Dr. Nelson was very pleased uh, with that, with that intervention, but it's really looking back at compliances and adherence that we could say, okay, here's what's happening with bowel prep. What can we do to make it better? Yeah. And, and Genevieve, one of the questions that many surgeons often have is, well, how do I predict like which patient is going to be at a higher risk of staying overnight? So I think you did a multivariate analysis to determine if there were any factors that could give you a clue as to this patient staying and this patient's definitely going home. Before yes, we, intervention. we, because of the ERAS bundle, you can't really tell which intervention had the biggest impact. Hence, we did our multivariate analysis to try to tease out what intervention or, or what, what were the factors that led to admission. 
And we found that longer length of surgery was a, a, a factor, as well as the timing of the surgery. Um, so if you're second or third case of the day, the odds uh, of you going home are, are much lower. And if you have narcotic use on the floor, so if you give patients narcotic just before they go home, they'll look drowsy, they won't look as sharp and ready to go as you would expect. So reducing that um, and addressing all those, those variables is important when you want a successful uh, uh, implementation. Yeah. And my next question, I think you touched upon it a little bit, um, but one of the things I hear commonly as I travel around the world and particularly in Latin America and Asia is that many surgeons will say, look, my patient is not going to be happy if I send her home too soon. So therefore, I like to keep her overnight. Um, so you did a patient satisfaction survey. Can you highlight some of those findings? Yes, we, we uh, did a patient satisfaction survey to really try to understand um, are patients really upset if we send them home same day or, you know, they go with the flow and they're, they, they, it's just they'll get used to this new uh, trend. Um, and overall, you know, I said 87 felt very good and excellent with regards to same day discharge, but 97 had a good and very good and excellent experience uh, over 80. 5% felt that their length of stay was adequate. They didn't feel that they would want to uh, go home uh, um, later. And, and speaking to patients, a lot are pretty keen to go home. Like they don't really want to go in a hospital. And you, if you don't, you know, if you don't put them in a room that's too cozy and comfortable <laughs> and shared area, like they'll be pretty eager to go home if they feel well enough. Like there's not that luxurious treatment of staying in a hospital. Um, and with COVID, it added a layer of complexity. So it is really important to set the expectation. And I can't emphasize that enough. So the discussion started when patients signed consent, you were expected to go home. Then as they met with our clinical nurse specialist leading up to surgery, you are expected to go home, make those arrangements. When they met in the pre-admission unit, you're expected to go home the day of surgery. We're expecting you to go home. So I think the expectations was set. And so patients had no surprise. It was not a surprise to them that you're like, well, you're good enough. Let's mm -hmm. go home. Um, they were mentally prepared and they didn't know any other way. So it really changed and shifted the mentality uh, as well. Yeah. And one of the other things that I wanted to bring up with regards to comments you hear from surgeons, they'll say, look, I have, I have clinic all morning and I do my surgeries in the afternoon. So um, I can't send my patients home the same day. So I was wondering if you did an analysis of the patients who had surgery in the morning versus the patients who had surgery in the afternoon? So yeah, if we look at the uh, at case number two or three, for us, that would be afternoon. Like we, you know, in, in Toronto, we get to do two cases a day for if, uh, if we're good, and that gets us to 5.30 because the turnover is pretty long. So the <laughs> second case is usually an afternoon case, definitely. So, so we don't have the luxury of other centers. Um, definitely, if you can prioritize their same-day discharge, your MIS patients as the first case of the day, I would highly recommend it recommend that move your list around if you can if you cannot um set the expectation that patients might go home as late as 11 p.m like uh, you you kind of set the expectation if they end up being admitted well plan that they go home very early in the morning no blood work breakfast is not served at 10 a.m with a discharge plan at 11 like you kind of plan that they would at 7 a.m when the rounds are done have your right pick you up like if it was just so that still shortens the hospital stay um, and decrease cost as well. 
Great. So, uh, Genevieve, I'm going to ask you a few questions from our fellows in the uh, International Journal. The first one is Natalie Medley. Uh, she's from Jamaica. And um, her question is, how long before the intervention uh, did the surgery, the anesthetic and the nursing teams need to be sort of sensitized to the program? Um, what, what was that, that time frame? We started about six months prior to launching the intervention where we had our stakeholder engagement. We went to the nursing, the various nursing team to provide some education and also hear them out and understand what would be the barriers to, to, to our successful uh, uh, implementation. So we really started uh, actively October uh, of 2019. And in January, that's where we said, okay, let's try to send patients. We're ready. Let's try to send them home the same day. And we did ongoing uh, um, uh, education on, on various interventions. For example, there was an issue with the Foley catheter being removed in the OR. So we had an intervention and an education session with the nurse in recovery room as well. Um, but I would say a few months before to kind of set the tone. Uh, and then you need ongoing education along the way to make sure that people don't forget about what you're doing and that there's ongoing uh, uh, feedback. Great. Um, this next question is from Demetrios Nasiudis from the University of Pennsylvania here in the U.S. Um, he asked, before implementation of the intervention, did patients routinely receive these post-operative calls following discharge? Surprisingly, yes. So we've been doing that for years, having a clinical nurse specialist that call patient 24 to 72 hours after a minimally invasive surgery. Uh, but what we really did is we standardized the education material that was covered um, uh, um, at those post-operative calls. So those calls were happening pre-intervention. Um, so, so it really uh, highlights that it's the bundle and all the other interventions together that have a huge impact on the success of, of same-day discharge. Yeah. Um, back to Natalie uh, from Jamaica. Uh, she asked about social factors um, and the duration of hospital stay. And she mentions of the 71 patients in the pre-intervention cohort who had overnight stays, you report that 55% had unspecified reasons. So not really a good reason or not, not documented. How much uh, of this could be attributed to social factors? Yes, that's a good question. When we look back, it was a retrospective audit. So we were certainly missing a lot of inf information. Um, and, and often the reasons were never documented. So I think it's a late call from the nurse to the on-call uh, trainee. Oh, patient doesn't want to go home, fine, admit, we'll see her in the morning, we'll discharge her. So this, those reasons were not well documented. So it was a big problem. Um, so there was certainly um, a potential uh, reason for social factors, but we didn't track that. Uh, we did look back at postal code and how far they live, and we couldn't find a pattern in those 55% of patients that were unspecified reason. Uh, so I think it was probably related to a low threshold for admission overnight. Um, the trainee didn't want to go at 10 p.m., assess the patient, just admit. And that was kind of standard practice. We're like, just admit it's easier. We'll see yeah. them in the morning. Yeah. And one, one last question from Natalie. Um, she says, um, the study found that the duration of surgery decreased significantly in the post-intervention cohort. How do you explain that? 
Yes, yeah, so um, in late 2019, we kind of changed our practice to Sentinel lymph node uh, for high-grade and low-grade endometrial cancer, thanks to my colleague, Dr. Ferguson, who published this amazing study on high-risk endometrial cancer. Um, we stopped doing pelvic and parotid uh, lymph node dissection on all high-grade endometrium, which, you know, it adds. Uh, the parotids are probably another hour. The full pelvic is <laughs> at 45 minutes. So it certainly adds to, to uh, the surgical time. That being said, on our multivariate analysis, nodal assessment was not a significant prognostic factor, but I think this was what accounted for the shorter uh, uh, surgery time because it time perfectly with, with our institution moving to um, sentinel lymph nodes for high-grade endometrial cancer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, certainly perhaps sentinel lymph node will become part of the ERAS guidelines. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so the next question is from Demetrius again. Um, he says, following your intervention, approximately half of the patients admitted did not have a clear indication for the admission. Could that still be related to patient or attending preference? And do you have any plans for further interventions to increase the same discharge, uh, same day discharge rate? Yeah. So earlier in the in, in the intervention, so in January 2020, uh, there were more patients with undocumented reasons for admission as the project was uh, was starting. Um, so one of our early interventions, so PDSA, was to include uh, and informing all the house staff to clearly report in the discharge summary why were the patients admitted. So that rate improved over time. Um, I agree it could have been related to patients and attending preference initially, but we don't have this level uh, of knowledge. There, you have to build comfort. Like patients have to kind of ease into this this new uh, 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 care post op. Um, so we were quite successful over time to change the mentality, but it took a little bit of time initially. Um, yeah. With regards to sustainability, we're looking at our, our like make sure that it's sustained over time, and 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 we're doing also a cost uh, uh, analysis now because the money that is potentially saved on same day discharge can be invested in in assessing adherence to ERAS principle and and having a nurse uh, a specialist help with with uh, education. Great. So we're looking forward to receiving that cost analysis manuscript as well. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, <laughs> um, so the two questions uh, coming up from Felix Bore in Spain. First question, it's related to anesthesia. And one of the things that have been proposed is that generally patients do much better with what is known as TIVA or total intravenous anesthesia. Uh, do you have any uh, information as to how many of your patients um, had TIVA? So unfortunately, we don't have that. that that information. This was discussed with our anesthesia lead to, 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 to do TIVA or not. Um, it kind of stayed there. Um, we didn't really pursue it uh, to a higher level. Uh, we had a few patients on ketamine infusion, um, but certainly uh, we didn't record who had gas uh, throughout the procedure. So I don't have that level of data, but certainly it's something to explore as more knowledge around TIVA uh, is rising and data on it. Yeah. So the next, the next question from Felix is, does it matter if you do it by laparoscopy or robotics? 
So as an exclusion criteria, remember we had the BMI over 50 as a potential exclusion criteria. Those patients at least should have a bed reserved for them uh, for issues with the uh, CO2 retention and sleep apnea. Um, at our center, robotic surgery is kept for patients with high BMI. So we don't have access to the robot for all comers. So we really uh, uh, favor the robot for specific cases, uh, such as the high BMI. So 20% of the patients underwent robotic approach. It's a more reflection of our resource uh, uh, at our center. Yeah, we so keep the, the, the robot for BMI over 40 and above. So if you're less than 40, you get a laparoscopy. More than 40, you're, you have access to potentially the robot. <laughs> Very well. Um, You're laughing. <laughs> <laughs> All of these can be done by laparoscopy, you know. <laughs> For sure. Oh, no robot, you mean. No robot at all. Exactly. But it, if you have access to it, then you have to tailor which patients would be. Uh, oh, absolutely. Be... Robotics is a perfectly reasonable approach as well. It's just my personal bias. Anyway, um, so. I'm um, not on the robot, so I'm not a robotic surgeon. So I, I'm, I'm on your side. <laughs> Um, the, the last uh, few questions are from Florianne Joshum uh, from France. Um, she said, the second most common reason for overnight stay in your study was underlying comorbidities. What kind of comorbidities keep a patient in the hospital? So the three uh, comorbidities that uh, kept patient in the hospital was a type 1 diabetes, um, and patient had a hypoglycemic event postoperatively. So, so looking back, type 1 di diabetic patients are a bit harder to manage postoperatively with the glycemic control. So that might be something in the future that those patients probably should stay overnight. We also had a patients with multiple sclerosis and vertigo, so that could not re really be predicted. Um, and uncontrolled hypertension in one of our patients postoperatively that needed monitoring overnight. So apart from the type 1 diabetic patient, I don't think we would really change our criteria otherwise moving forward uh, as there were no real pattern. Um, use judgment. We also set some of those rules, but at the end, you know, clinical judgment trumps everything. Um, the 80-20 rule where you can use your judgment uh, uh, when things don't align perfectly. Yeah. And um, the last question from Florian, um, I think she, she brings up this question as sort of a, a reflection of something that we might hear, perhaps even from more likely the senior surgeons, where they might say, you know, look, an ERAS protocol treats every patient the same way. And I like to treat my patient as an individual. And uh, I like to actually just then manage them one by one, rather than just as a as part of the ERAS protocol pathway. Um, what would you say to that? I mean, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement will tell you that standardization is a fundamental starting point for any improvement effort. Um, so it doesn't mean that you're restricting individual decision-making or it's the end of autonomy. Uh, a provider can always use clinical judgment as they see uh, uh, fit to adapt to the patient's context. But keep in mind that following ERAS protocol will reduce unintended variation in care, and it's a good starting point. Um, it's been proven to be beneficial to patient and to the healthcare system. So, so, so having this, this personalized, it, it still allows for personalization of care and it improves care, I would argue. Um, but among a small group of physicians, it's important to standardize your practice. 
Well, Genevieve, uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, speaking with you and, and I want to obviously be respectful of your time. So one last question, what would you consider is the most impacting message that you could deliver regarding same day discharge after minimally invasive surgery to the global community of gynecologic oncology surgeons? Well, I think that's a great question. Uh, first, it is essential to understand the context uh, and, and, and what are your same-day discharge rate at your institution. A root cause analysis will allow you to better understand factors that might be specific to your institution. Um, standardization of the perioperative care um, after minimally invasive gynecologic oncology uh, procedure among a group of gynecologic oncology surgeons is a good starting point. So start by looking at what you're doing and make sure everyone is aligned um, from pre-op to intra-op to post-op. Um, and find your allies. Um, build a strong multidisciplinary team, uh, uh, which I think will allow a successful implementation of same-day discharge um, because you need anesthesia, you need the nursing team, you need uh, trainees. Uh, everyone needs to be aligned uh, um, and set the expectation. Uh, I recommend starting with the ERAS principle because they've been studied that they're well uh, evidence-based intervention um, and it's a really good place to start and they already predefined um, as well. There's limited work in minimally invasive surgery, but now we've proven that adapting ERAS principle works uh, uh, for improving your length of stay uh, after a, a minimally invasive gynecologic surgery. So that's a good starting point. Genevieve, um... Bouchard Fortier, thank you so, so much. Um, it's been really a pleasure and uh, I really enjoyed speaking with you. I really enjoyed reading this manuscript. Uh, I really uh, hope that this will be um, uh, a manuscript and, and data that can be used to hopefully uh, improve patient care by, by increasing those rates of same-day discharge. I commend you for your work uh, and your team uh, as well. Um, and once again, uh, congratulations uh, for um, your work and for all that you do in gynecologic oncology. Really looking forward to future work from you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Pedro. Uh, this was a, a great discussion and thank you for highlighting our paper as well. <laughs>